In 1961, President Kennedy gave us this mission, land a man on the moon. Today the debate continues about the value and cost of space exploration, but no one doubts the power of a goal. Did you know that one far greater than President Kennedy has given us a mission? The writers of all four Gospels made sure that we didn't miss the goal. Let's join our study leader, Dave Wordson, and look at some of Jesus' last words as he challenges us with his ultimate mission. I remember in 1957 when Russia launched the Sputnik. I mean, that was a powerful day. The Cold War was raging. The United States and the Soviet Union were in this bitter struggle. And in 1957, the Russians beat the United States into outer space, and it sent tremors throughout the free world. Then I'll never forget it got worse. April 12, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space, and in mid-April, America listened as the Bay of Pigs mission turned into a fiasco. I remember being in New Jersey. I was in my mom and dad's living room, and I remember listening to the radio as they start getting these reports about the Americans have invaded Haiti, which is just 90 miles off the coast of Florida. And then I'll never forget listening as the thing just went disastrous. So when President Kennedy stood before a joint session of Congress on May 25th, 1961, America was behind in the space race and we were losing the Cold War. America needed a change. We needed something to really happen. We needed what Collins has called a big, hairy, audacious goal. And as President Kennedy stood before the joint session of Congress, the Bay of Pigs disaster just happened. The Soviet Union is destroying us in space. He stood before the joint session of Congress, and this is what he said. Soon after Freedom 7 landed, President John Kennedy gave NASA an ambitious new space goal. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win and the others too. It was the mission, and engineers from all over the United States started getting involved in NASA, and eight years later, on July 20th, 1969, Apollo 11 Commander Neil Armstrong stepped off the ladder of the lunar module, and he took that gigantic leap for mankind. Remember that? Now, all of us would agree, they gathered together the NASA engineers that are still living that accomplished the space shuttle. As these engineers were reminiscing about the mission and all that involvement, every one of them would say is that their lives went from black and white to brilliant color. Everyone in this room, when you've been caught up in an incredible mission, suddenly you're alive. If you were to ask any one of those NASA engineers, Ask any of the astronauts, they would say, during those years from the challenge of President Kennedy, 
We're going to land a man in the moon. People laughing at it. It's impossible. It's the stuff of science fiction to when Neil Armstrong actually did it. Their lives were alive. And we can debate today whether or not that's a legitimate goal. But I want to talk to you today about what will change your life. And maybe it's black and white as you sit here today. You wonder, what in the world am I doing? You know, I'm putting in the time and I don't, my life has just become dull. I want you to realize that somebody a lot more powerful, someone that's a lot more influential, someone that has greater authority than even the United States president has come to every single one of you and he's given you a big, hairy, audacious goal. It needs to be the goal of your life. It needs to be the goal of your family life. And it needs to be the goal of the incredible thing called the body of Christ. We've been just doing a series, What Is? We started out with Adam and Eve. We said a marriage is between a man and a woman. But I want you to know that when God created the home, he didn't just create it to be a nice, comforting place where we just enjoy love for one another. The Lord immediately, when Adam and Eve sinned and they plunged into rebellion, the Lord reached out to them and he promised he would send a deliverer. And the story of the Bible right at the very beginning, as I've taught you over and over again, is a story of the incredible ultimate daddy in heaven that is reaching out to children that are wandering away from him. And God's mission for Adam and Eve was for them to, through Eve, to generate the one that would bless the world. And the whole story of the Old Testament, you can put it together as the Lord progressively tells more and more of this story. Finally, at Christmas season, we celebrate that the incredible promise took place. The angel Gabriel appeared to a virgin up in Nazareth and said, you're going to be with child. And that little girl, probably 13 to 14 years of age, she knows immediately, am I the one that will give birth to the son of David, to this great promise deliverer that we've been looking forward to from the beginning of time? In the first century, there were moms and dads that had trained their little Galilean girl, this is what you live for. And she said, let it be done unto me according to your will that I will accept that. And and Mary and Joseph go down to Bethlehem and Jesus is born. Then Jesus is protected. John the Baptist announces that he is the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away this in the world. Then John is in prison and then Jesus does all those miracles. Jesus eventually comes into incredible conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And then he's put on a cross And on the cross, he screams forth, it is finished. And what he's saying is not that I am finished, but the plan of redemption. It's possible for every one of you to be forgiven. It's possible for every one of you to not have to pay for your sins. Jesus is saying, I'm the sacrifice. I'm the one that deals with the curse of death. And then incredibly, as the disciples, the 11 disciples that were left, they're plunged into discouragement. They think that the mission, they thought the Messiah had come to institute an earthly kingdom right then. He was going to destroy the Romans. And instead, the Romans stretch him out on the cross by the impetus of the religious leaders of his day. And Jesus is dead. And they're devastated. But then on Easter morning, Jesus rose again from the dead. And those 11 apostles had the greatest mission of all. They had walked and talked and handled the only Savior that ever lived on planet Earth in all of history who died and then beat it. As Jesus rose again from the dead, he started appearing 
to different ones, like Peter, he appeared to his half-brother James, and their lives were transformed. But did you know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the historical records that give us four different perspectives on who Jesus is, how he was born in Matthew and Luke, the beginning of his ministry with John the Baptist, and all four Gospels. What I just shared with you was the basic proclamation of all four of the Gospels. I just summarized it for you. And you need to really get that in your heart and be able to share it. But did you know that just like President Kennedy stood before a joint session of Congress and said, this is the mission, and eight years later a man was stepping forth on the moon, that God gave to every one of you a mission and every one of the Gospels repeats it? And what we want to do is we finish the story and say, Dave, the meaning of my family is a husband and wife that are involved in the mission of touching all of the world and making disciples, proclaiming the gospel, helping people to turn away from their sins and receive the forgiveness of Calvary. We want to look at how Jesus is now resurrected and saying, I'm the authority on planet Earth. What he says to every one of you, because your, your family is a husband. As a dad, your family is not going to come together unless you're on a mission. It's going to be on a mission. And you as an individual say, well, I'm a single person. I haven't found the one that the Lord... Well, you're part of a family. You're one of the brothers. You're one of the sisters right here. If you're single here, you're part of this whole series because this is a household this morning. We are part of the embassy household of God, which is one small part of this incredible body of Christ that reaches from the beginning of the first century all the way down until the present, and we're going to accomplish our mission. So let's look at it. As the Son of God stood, not before he joined such in a Congress, but as he met with his 11 disciples, the foundation of his new household, the Church of Christ, the Bride of Christ, what did he say? Matthew is probably the most famous place, so let's turn there. Matthew chapter 28. When Jesus gives you the last words of the last command before he ascends into heaven, it's real important to listen. And from the gospel's perspective, as you listen in Matthew, you start out with the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, and you work all the way through to the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, we have Jesus' last command in the gospel of Matthew. Look what he says. He says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. These are the 11 disciples. Judas has been removed. He committed suicide after betraying the Lord. So now you have the foundation 11 disciples in the book of Acts. Mattathias is going to become the 12th disciple that will complete this foundational group. Notice that they're obedient. They probably go up to close to where Judas was raised. They're probably in the foothills of Mount Hermon, which is about 10,000 feet high. So those of you that like to go to Colorado, that's the setting. Jesus has told them to go to this mountain. This is probably the mountain where Jesus was transfigured, which would remind the disciples of his heavenly authority. And I want you to see that those that get the command, they're obeying. Jesus had told them, you need to go up to Galilee. When he was resurrected, he told the women that he appeared to, tell my disciples I'll meet them up in Galilee. So Matthew just rushes right to this meeting of the resurrected Christ with his 11 foundational disciples up on this mountain in Galilee. What does he say? He says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's what we've been doing this morning. It's very important for every single one of us to be continuing what our 11 apostles did in the first century. They worshiped the Lord Jesus. You worship the one that's God. 
So one of the things I want all of you to be clear on is that the resurrected Jesus, you can get down before him and you can worship him. I also want you to know that the text is honest. When you have someone that has nail prints in his hands, has a hole in his side, has holes in his feet, and you just saw him breathe out his last on the cross, and then suddenly you're meeting him for a very important meeting on Mount Hermon, you're going to doubt. That's the way it is. When I see the Lord powerfully work, I have tremendous joy, but I also doubt. Anybody ever had that? It's very honest. Kids, as you grow up and you begin to own your own faith, I don't want you to be discouraged about your doubts. I want you to feel free to ask questions. I want you to realize if you start reading someone like Christopher Hitchens, who's an atheist, and you start being pulled into his arguments, I don't want you to turn away from the faith. You need to talk to us. We've read those arguments. We've listened to those arguments. We've felt the doubt yourself. That's why you have a family. It's all right to doubt. It's all right to question. That's what Matthew is honest about. It's part of the nature of your growth in faith. Part of the journey towards really owning your own faith is that you ask really hard questions. You go through times of doubts. You're going to have times of great emotional doubts and discouragements because of all kinds of things that are happening. That doesn't mean that you don't believe in the resurrected Christ. But you need to keep talking to the resurrected Christ. You need to keep fellowshipping with those that believe him. So right at the beginning of the foundation, as the resurrected Christ begins to give us this mission, he's honest about our relationship together. We're going to worship. But right at the time when we worship, there will be some among us that are doubting, that are questioning. And Matthew's honest about that, which becomes one of the answers that I have. If this was just a contrived text, you'd never say that some of the original 11 were doubting at the very beginning. All these things that I've been involved in where people are giving me propaganda, they're artificially trying to pump me up, they never say stuff like, hey, some of the major guys here have questions. You understand what I'm saying? There's integrity in that. So it says that they worshiped and then some of them doubted. But Jesus came to them. And that's what Jesus wants in the presence of his spirit. I want him to come to you this morning. I believe that the resurrected Jesus in his spirit is here this morning. And what will deal with your doubts and what dealt with the doubts of my own kids, it wasn't intellectual answers. It was the coming of Jesus in their own lives and through their brothers and sisters in Christ that helped them to get the answers to their questions and to keep worshiping the resurrected Christ, which is what's going to happen to you. It says Jesus came to them, and he says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. The very first thing I want you to realize is when someone gives you a mission, like when President Kennedy said, we're going to land a man on the moon, he had authority. I could have made that goal, and nothing happens at NASA. No money's appropriated. Nothing happens. No engineer gathers. I don't have that authority. But when President Kennedy stood before a joint session of Congress, he was the president of the United States. And he used his authority to say, we're going to put a man on the moon. People laughed at him. They thought it was a crazy thing. Those that said the glass is half empty said it'll never be done. But he had authority. And one of the greatest technological events that ever took place in all of history took place because he implemented his authority. What I want you to know is you sit here today, you need to sit under the authority 
of the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords. I want you to know what Jesus is claiming is all the authority has given me where? Tell me. In? Where is that? Where is heaven? They just found out, like when I was, in, when I was taking astronomy in college, there were so many stars. They just, what is, they just tripled it. Boy, that gives me a lot of confidence in my teachers. I'm sorry we blew it by a third. When they gave me 33%, I flunked. So if you lose your faith over what seems to be the latest thing in science, don't do that. To find out that we have tripled the number of stars just tells me my heavenly Jesus is the Lord of even more grand places. And when scientists tell me, well, that means that there might be some life, there is life out there. They're called angels. There's a ton of life. There's thousands and thousands of them, and they've already started praising the Lord Jesus. Don't you lose faith like if you're a kid. I don't want you to think of, oh, that's just little Jesus, and, and that's little Sunday school stuff, and that's what mom and dad taught me. But man, when I get in the great big world and find out what's really happening, when I look through the Hubble telescope and I really see what's out there, then I forget all about that little childish stuff called Jesus. Don't ever do that. Jesus is the Lord. And I got news for you. When you go to be with him, you're going to find out that heaven is not just this present universe and the thousands and millions and millions, you know, trillions of stars, but it's even beyond that. And Jesus is saying, my heavenly father, the king, made me the one that has authority. I want you to remember that as husbands when you're leading your family, as moms when you're trying to help your kids to come to know Jesus. When you're trying to reach your people at work, your heavenly Jesus has authority. You'll never act if you don't have authority. Like I was raised with a dad that really believed that, but I'm hesitant. And I would wonder, even today when I'm presenting you the word of God, I can wonder, is this really going to work? And, you know, what's going to happen? I can be filled with doubt. And I have to remember, it's Jesus' authority. And I want every one of you to understand how incredibly powerful your Savior is. President Kennedy has come and gone. In my life, Khrushchev has come and gone. The ones that used to terrorize the world, my students in that I teach don't even know their names anymore. But Jesus, he's still going strong. The atheists even have to put on the thing. You know, you don't need God to have moral standards. Why do they have to put that? Why do you do that just before Jesus' birthday? Don't get all huffy and puffy about that. It's proving your faith. We're in a conflict. It's a great proof to your faith because Jesus has all authority. People react against his authority. And you want to decide, I'm going to live with his authority. I'm going to believe in his authority. So it says, all authority has been given me on heaven and earth. Then he says, therefore, I want you to go. And all of you have heard that the command in this verse is make disciples, but the command from make disciples flows into the first statement. It's not just as you go. Oh, by the way, you're going all the time, and you might want to throw this in. That's not the idea. I want you to know that if you come to Jesus, you're going to go. You're going to go into police departments. You're going to go into schools. You're going to go into banks. You're going to go into other countries. When I first started out with this family, some of you thought it was incredible to go across the Trinity River to Dallas. 
And now the Lord's been taking you to Eastern Europe and, and encouraging Ed and Corley that helped us found our church. I want everyone of you to know, and I want your parents to know, if you really trust in Jesus, you're going to be on the go. You got to go. You say, why is that? Because there are a billion people in the world that haven't even heard the name of Jesus yet. And we've got incredible good news. So you got to go. And that's what the text is saying. Jesus is saying, I command you. I have authority. And if you have me in your heart, then you've got incredible good news. And you got to go with your feet. You got to go with your hands. You got to go with your mouth. You're going to go. Now, what do you do when you go? You make disciples. Notice it says you make disciples. You say, what in the world is a disciple? The disciple just means you make followers of Jesus. Matthew gives us the full picture. He doesn't just say that you need to help people to hear the gospel. They all need to hear the four laws, and you go, that's it. No, he said, I want you to go and live among people. I want you to embody Jesus, because your commitment is not just to make someone say, oh, yeah, I got a fire escape to heaven. You're to make a fully devoted follower of Jesus. That's what Matthew is saying, because that's what the Gospels present. That's why the four Gospels, they tell the whole story of Jesus. That's the greatest mission as you're going, that you are making fully committed followers of Jesus. Where is that going to begin? Matthew tells you. Notice he says that it begins by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you have received Jesus as your Savior, then the first step, the first public proclamation of that is you want to get baptized. It's just the way it is. The New Testament doesn't have people that believe in Jesus that don't get baptized. And it's not a religious act. It's not a ritual. It's the embodiment. Their heart is connected with their body, with their hands. They want to publicly confess him. And all that baptism is, I want all the kids to know it isn't. I get to be 13. All my friends in the Baptist church get baptized. I'm going to get baptized. It's like my, that's what my Roman Catholic friends did when I was a kid in New Jersey. When I'm 12 years old, I go through catechism, and then I do what every Roman Catholic kid does. That's not enough. What we're talking about, Jesus is saying that you've really met Jesus. You've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know that he died on the cross for your sins. You've heard that message. You know that he's risen from the dead. You know that he wants you to turn away from your sin. And through his power, you're not going to turn away from your own strength. But that's what it means to repent, that you turn away and you say, Jesus, I want you to forgive me. I want you to give me a new life. That's what the gospel is. That's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all saying. And when you make that commitment in your heart... The very next thing is you want to publicly let other people know. And so you want to act out what happened in your heart. And so you you want to be immersed. You want to be baptized. That's the idea of it. That's what the text is saying. Matthew is saying that this process of discipleship begins by baptizing. And for hundreds of years now, believers like you have been going through what, from a human standpoint, seems to be a pretty simple but a, a little bit strange thing. But parents like you have been teaching their little kids and teaching adults that believed in Jesus. I really want to challenge you. You say, I've really received Jesus in my heart, but I've never publicly acted it out for my friends and my unbelieving friends and my relatives and my kids. You need to do it. Because that's what Matthew says is what discipleship is. In the early church, that was the first evidence that you're following Jesus. I believed in Jesus in my heart. I've trusted him. I believe in him. Now I take the first step and I obey him. 
What happens after you do that? Now I've got a fire escape to heaven. I've received Jesus as my Savior. Now I just go and live any way I want to. No, that's not the great command. That's not the mission. Notice what it says the next thing, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see, and teaching them everything I've commanded you. Is that what it says? No. What did I leave out? Somebody tell me what I left out. Teaching them. The trouble with a lot of my training is I was taught. We teach a bunch of students. But you know, I'll have some of my students, I'm teaching them to preach. Some of my friends that went to Dallas Seminary with me never went to church. So you're going to school to learn how to preach. Where do you preach usually? In a gathered community of saints. And that's what happens when you just teach. Some of you know this book cold. When I go into the prison with Bill Curry, the most knowledgeable people of the Bible, some of those guys have been in prison for 20 years, and they don't have a lot to do. So they read the Bible over and over again. You can ask any policeman in our church. The recurrent criminals often know this book cold. And they get out of prison, and they rape another girl. And they, they rob another convenience store. And they take drugs again. You say, Dave, how can that ever happen? Because they just have learned in their head. But they left so they're not really important. you got to obey. Some of you are sitting here saying, this doesn't work. In other words, I've been part of a body of believers, and, and, and this faith just doesn't work. You know why it doesn't work? Because you haven't obeyed. In other words, you've learned all about how to play the game. You learned all about, you know, what you need to do. And you become an expert. Like Wally and I used to work on projects. We, we're, trying to get a, we're trying to get a stupid John Deere tractor going, an old John Deere tractor. And Elaine's dad would sit there. And he knew all about the John Deere tractor. He was an expert. He would stand there. And he would instruct us. You know what? Mr. Lee would never get the John Deere tractor going. Because unlike Wallace, who Wallace knew it in his head, But he actually showed me and taught me how to rebuild a John Deere engine. And he would get out the manual. We'd we'd order all the instructions from all these ancient John Deeres, and he would go through it. But, man, we didn't just sit in Elaine's living room and kitchen going through the manual. He'd say, all right, we got the manual. Then we go out. And he said, you idiot from New Jersey, this is what you do. And we worked for hours and hours and hours. And then we had to call in Arvid Westfall, who was another hands-on guy, to help us to figure out how to do it. That's the difference. What I want you to know, every one of you guys in business know there's people that know it in their heads. Every big industrial guy that I talk to say, man, there's guys that have PhDs. They couldn't make this plan happen in a million years. Any of you ever said that? Well, that's what Judas is saying spiritually. He's saying, you got to learn, and I want to challenge you, one of the greatest joys of your life, Jesus tells you, like I've told you today, your mission, according to Mark, is to proclaim the good news. So do it this week. Obey. He says, go and teach to obey, and then he says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. So as we are seeking to do this, 
Mark is going to come back and focus on you need to proclaim the gospel to every creature in the world. Luke will give you the risen Christ saying, I'm going to eat some fish for you. I want you to plunge your finger into the holes in my hand, the hole in my side. Luke wants to really deal with your doubt. And then he's going to say, I want you to go and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. And then John's going to add a totally different perspective. Jesus is going to say, as the Father sent me, so send I you. And so I've been raised ever since I was a little kid. So send I you to labor unrewarded. This incredible song about, as the Father has sent me, so send I. Anybody ever heard that? I was raised with that. It's this old missionary tongue. And we'd all have to respond, man, we want to be sent with the Father. But nobody really stressed a whole lot that Jesus in that context breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. So I want every one of you to know that the Holy Spirit is breathing on you today. Dear Lord Jesus, we just praise you that your spirit is evidencing that you've only just begun to accomplish the Great Commission. Lord, we want it never to be said that it was the great omission that we lost the commitment to your word. We lost intimacy with Christ. We lost the passion to see unbelievers born into your family. We lost what you said that We needed to be like a light, and unbelievers could look at what we do, not just our words, but we could say, hey, it's the risen Jesus, and our risen Jesus makes us love even those that we don't know. Pray that there might be a moving of your spirit, that we might make disciples of all nations, that we might proclaim the gospel to every creature under the earth, that we might preach repentance and forgiveness of sins, And that we might be sent. Lord, you're sending us out. Just like, Lord Jesus, at Christmas, you were sent by your Father to step over the threshold of heaven and come to this earth. And, Lord, we want to pray that we'll step over the threshold of our unbelieving friends, business associates. Use this to accomplish what we learn in your word from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.